We are going to cover two verses this morning. We're going to be in the book of Philippians for the next eight weeks. Is that okay? Um, I think it's important for us to, to sit down sometimes. It's good to have topical sermons and topical series. And um, I hope you got a lot out of the last series just asking for a friend. I know that I was challenged even through studying and, and researching some things. But I want us to really dig down into the Scripture and, and go word by word in a, a book of the Bible. And so we're going we're gonna to look at the book of Philippians. Now, we spend our whole lives chasing goals. We chase dreams. Um, we, we're thinking that... Those things are going to make us happy. And can I just tell you that happiness always comes with an expiration tag. You can be happy in one moment and then you're not happy in the next. But Jesus does not want us seeking happiness. He wants us to seek joy. Because joy can only be found in Him. So we're going to look at Philippians, which is probably the most joyful book in all of the Scripture. And it's written by this guy who was persecuted and persecuted and is probably one of the least likely contestants to be a man of joy. But he is considered a joyful writer and he writes this book from a prison cell. That's important. What I'm going to do over the next few minutes is I'm going to take you through the first two verses of Philippians today. Just the first, first couple of verses. And I want to build a foundation to help us understand as we move forward over these next couple of weeks that every week we should be building a little bit more and the book will make a little more sense to us. So, the first two are really weird because this is a greeting. And typically we read right through the greetings of books. Just like the genealogies, we typically kind of skip over. How many of you know the Bible? read the Bible in one year, you get to the book uh, where it starts talking about the genealogies. You're like, yeah, I think I can skip this one this morning. But would you believe... Uh, believe me if I tell you this, that the Word of God, the Word of God, the Scripture, is God-breathed every single word. There are only two things in all of Scripture that is God-breathed. That is His Word. You ready for the next one? You. Because you and I were once just nothing more than a vocal or a, a wavelength in the vocal cords of God. That He spoke us into existence. So, His Word and His image bears us, the only things that our God breathes. So, if that's the case, then every single word in the Scripture is important. And so, we're going to look, and we can go ahead and start in Philippians chapter 1. So, if you can turn over to Philippians chapter 1. It starts out like this. Paul. We should stop right there. Paul. Um, Paul, because you need to know who wrote the letter, right? Uh, if you got a letter in the mail and it didn't have anybody's return date on it, it didn't have any, anybody, you don't, you don't know who it came from. Like You would want to know who sent this letter, correct? Like Especially if you were back in the 90s and there was a little bit of white powder residue on that. You want to know where it came from? Y'all remember that? anthrax there was that um so we we need to understand who it is writing this letter and so it starts out real simple he, he says paul paul let me tell you a little bit about paul about six years after jesus is born there is this little baby who was born in this city called tarsus it's about a hundred miles away from jerusalem and this little boy is named Saul. 
Saul. Now, he's probably named for the first king of Israel, King Saul, who did not turn out to be a really good king. But he's named Saul. And he's growing up in this metropolis of Tarsus. And everybody knows who he is. He's in this city that's known for its academia. His daddy is a Pharisee, so they know who he is because he is a Pharisee. And people knew Paul because of his dad's profession. So he's growing up in the big city. He's growing up um, studying the scriptures. He is a Hebrew among the Hebrews. What does that mean? A Hebrew among the Hebrew means he spoke the language, he talked the talk, he did the walk. He was all things Hebrew Jewish, right? And so the scriptures would tell us that he was zealous of his tradition and of his Jewish people. That This is the things that he longed for because he was in this culture to, to live out these teachings of God as a, as a Hebrew. He was so good at what he did that he decides, I want to go to school to continue to study the laws of God. So he will be accepted into the school in Tarsus, and he will graduate with a law degree. Now, not a law degree like you and I would have, like I have, because I could never, ever get through pre, pre-law because I'd fall asleep in the first three seconds. Um, so he goes to get a law degree. Now, when we think law degree, we think, oh, teach you how to sue people, how to you know, prosecute people. But he is getting a degree in the law of God. He is learning how to to take this law of God, understand it word by word, memorize it, live it out, apply that in his life, and teach other people how to follow the law. And so he graduates with this law degree, and and in teenage Saul will study and memorize every single word of the Torah. Every single word. I have a hard enough time remembering my pen number to my debit card. And here is Paul has studied it and is so zealous for the word of God. He's going through the scrolls and he memorizes it and he graduates. And he was so good at it, he decides, I want to pursue being a Pharisee like my father. I want to be like my dad. The Pharisee is the highest calling that you could have in the scriptures. And he is pursuing this opportunity. So he studies and he memorizes. And he wants to separate himself from the evil in the world because, see, the goal of the Pharisee is to understand the Scriptures so much that when the Messiah comes, you will know he's the Messiah because you understand the Word. And that was the goal. That's what he set out to do. So he graduates from from Pharisee school and he decides, hey, why not go another step further? And so he applies to study under one of the most famous rabbis in the first century, this guy named Gamaliel. Now, it was impossible to get to study under this guy because he only selected so many. But because Saul was so good at what he did and he stood out in the top of his class, he's chosen by Gamaliel to come and train under him. So now he leaves Tarsus and he makes the 100-mile journey down to Jerusalem. He gets there and he begins to study. But he notices something has changed about Jerusalem since the last time he's been there. The Jewish people aren't so open to the cultures 
like he used to be and so open to the traditions like he used to be because they're not attending worship at the temple like they used to. Jewish people are having barbecues all of a sudden, like things have changed, they're not going the same. Why are these people not following the traditions that I, the Pharisee, am trying to push our culture, I'm trying to push our teachings, I'm trying to help them fall in love with God, but for something has shifted and I don't know what it is. And he notices this change. Well, he will soon find out that there's this new uprising from these quote-unquote rebels who have come into town. And he begins to pursue this new group called the Christians or followers of the way. They don't love the temple and Saul's traditions like Saul does. They have fallen in love with Jesus. And they have moved the traditions out. And so they claim... And they tell Saul, the Messiah showed up, and you missed him. And he's going, no, 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 he didn't, because you guys are untrained, and you don't know anything. You're a bunch of rebels, Nazarenes. I know, because I've studied, so if the Messiah had come, I would know that he had been here. And I'm telling you, he has not. You guys are just being rebellious because you don't want to do what you're supposed to do as a good Hebrew. So Saul thought to himself, there is no way that a Messiah showed and I had no clue. Can you sense the arrogance of Saul? I know more than you do. You You don't know what I know because I have the best training. So, This upsets him because he thinks these Christians, these rebels, are being a little full of themselves. And he's like, this this has to stop. It has to stop. And so he, he, he says that he calls them the Nazarenes. Because remember what this what the scriptures have said about Jesus is that there's nothing good that comes from where? Nazareth. In other words, these, these people ain't worth anything. Do you, know, do you know where they're from? you got to remember here, Saul, again, he's zealous for his people. He's zealous for the temple. He is zealous for the things of God. And if you're not following it, then you're not right. This is called legalism, everybody. And so what he decides to do is he says they're claiming that this Messiah has come. So he decides we're going to figure out who's behind this uprising. Like we're not, I'm going to protect the temple. I'm going to do what I can to protect the culture, to protect what we do, our traditions. And so he sets out on a mission to discover who is causing all these problems. And he finds out there are three of them. Shocker, Peter, James, and John. How many times did their names come up through the gospel for causing problems? And so he says that these guys are behind the uprising. So he begins to persecute these guys. He begins to send a persecution. So in Acts chapter 5, we have a story that Peter heals a man on the Sabbath. Now, he's not in trouble because he healed somebody. He's in trouble because he healed the person on the what? On the Sabbath. We're to honor the Sabbath. We're to keep the Sabbath day holy. It's a day of rest. We're not to do any work. But even though there was somebody in need and somebody was healed that day, instead of glorifying and thanking God for what happened, he's arrested because he was working on the Sabbath. And so 
what do they do? They beat him. They beat Peter. They want to get rid of him. Because if we beat this guy and people see him as an example, then everybody else will stop. Well, if you'll follow history, every time the church is persecuted, it grows. There might be a little bit of pruning that happens. COVID was a pruner, but the church grew through those things. And so they, they, they are wanting to get rid of it. Saul wants nothing to do with it, but his teacher Gamaliel says this. He says that, you know, maybe, maybe we should let these guys go. Because what if, Saul, hear me out now. What if they're right? What if they're right? And, and here we are beating them. We don't want to be on the wrong side of this. We don't want to be on the wrong side of it. And Gamaliel's like, we, we need to let him go, Saul. So he does. They let him go. But Paul says, Saul says, uh, uh, not on my watch. I'm going to go find them. I'm going to persecute them. We're going to get rid of them. So after he figures out who the real leaders are of this, this movement of the way, they catch this man named Stephen. Y'all remember Stephen? Now, Stephen uh, is just preaching the gospel, and they didn't want to hear it. So he gets stoned with rocks and they throw him and they begin beating him. And Saul is standing right there and he starts a riot alongside the religious when they're killing Stephen. This is the first recorded martyr in all of the scriptures. And Saul thinks his God is, is proud of him for that. Could you imagine killing someone and then going, God, aren't you happy with me? Look what I've done. It's almost as if Paul forgotten the very law that he was pushing and teaching in the Ten Commandments, is it not? And they kill Stephen, and he thinks that God's proud, and to make things worse, all of these Christians flee to the north. Now, we know things must have been bad because they fled to the north when typically people from the north flee to the south. We love you people that came from the north. Don't feed the seagulls, okay? We love you. But they flee to the city called Antioch, and Saul's like, it's, you don't get off that easy. So he goes to the religious council and says, listen, I want a law passed, and I want papers saying that if you follow this man and claim him to be the Messiah, and you attend a synagogue, I have every right to arrest you and persecute you. And they gave him the papers. So now he is got the papers to go and make the arrest and to persecute this new movement called the church. So he flees to Antioch to go to shut this thing down with the, with the idea that when I see them, I'm going to give so much attack to them that this whole movement is just going to fade away and we'll never have to do, to do it again. He obviously missed the fact when they said that when we kill Jesus and put him in a tomb, this whole movement will stop, but that didn't work out either. And so now he's armed with papers and he's going to drag these people out of the synagogues and, and not just to beat men and women, but children too. Anybody that's making this profession that Jesus is the Messiah, he wants them dead. Let me, let me help you out here. Saul is a religious terrorist. He's a religious terrorist. He loves God and he's full of the law, but he's also full of terror. And when you think about Saul, you think about two things, law and terror. These are the two things that he does. And these are the two things that he does well. And everybody is scared of him. 
Because when he rolls up in the town, something's going down. He's not just here to teach his laws. He's here to carry out these laws. Acts chapter 9 tells us that while they're on their way to Antioch, out of nowhere, Saul's kicked off of his horse. And there's a blinding light that comes down. And he hears this voice that calls his name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not the church or these Christians, but he hears the voice that says, why are you persecuting me? He's never had this encounter with Jesus before, but this is the first thing that he, this is his first conversation with Jesus, is that Jesus' bright light shines, he falls off the horse, he's talking to this voice, his army of guys that are with him are kind of standing around going, did he hit his head? Because he's like now talking, and, and this is some bad thing, he must be in concussion, let's do this concussion protocol, and, and, and then he hears the voice just saying, why are you persecuting? He is face to face with Jesus. And he surrenders to Jesus. But he is blinded for the next three days. He's blind. And they pick him up. And from this moment on, everything about Saul changes. They take him to a city. They walk in there in the city. And the Spirit comes to this guy named Ananias, who is a disciple. And he hears a word from God and God tells him that I want you to go to Straight Street. Here's what I love about that. There's no confusion in where Saul is. God gave him the GPS coordinates. Very specifically, he is on Straight Street. Here's the good news about that. If God knew exactly where Saul was and his location, guess what he knows about you? So he gives him this direction that I want you to go to Straight Street. And I want you to go pray for this terrorist. And if you'll read this in Acts chapter 9, this conversation that Ananias is having with God, like, hey, I got it, but let me, just to make sure, the guy that's been the terrorist that's killing all the Christians, right? That's the guy that you want me to go and pray for? Like, really pray for my enemy? That was a real thing? Like, you want me to do that? Because is it a setup? Because the moment that I go and proclaim that I worship the Messiah Jesus and I pray in his name, this guy's going to kill me. But God sends Ananias, and out of obedience, he follows, and he goes right on down the straight street, and there he finds Saul sitting there in his blindness, helpless. And he tells him that I, I have come to pray over you. The Spirit has sent me to you. And he lays hands, and he prays over Saul. And it's like the Bible says that scales fall from his eyes. And he begins to see. And I don't think it was just a physical sight that he was able to see that day. There was a spiritual to it. Because I think his eyes were open to the very thing he tried to stop was the very thing that was open to him becoming a part of. And so, over the next few days, he stays in Damascus and he is discipled. And the Jewish leaders find out that this predator is in town so now the predator becomes the prey and so he goes on the run and this is what i find interesting that saul didn't realize that as he was chasing after christians ultimately god was teaching him how to run from the very people that he was chasing things have changed so paul heads out to arabia for some time we don't know how long he goes to arabia but he he goes 
to learn to, to, to a place of safety so that he can figure out all this stuff about the Messiah. Isn't it interesting that he knows everything about the law, but he knows nothing about the Messiah. And now he has humbled himself to the teachings of these rebels to teach him, not theology professors and doctors and PhD holders. He, he goes directly to the men and women that followed in the steps of Jesus and many have physically seen Jesus. And when he comes back from Arabia, he understands the Scriptures. Like, truly understands them. He's embracing every word of the Old Testament. There's a fire that is within him and he has to tell everybody. So he heads... To Damascus, they planned to kill him. So then he heads back to Jerusalem. They tried to kill him. Then he heads to Tarsus. And when he left, he was a religious Pharisee. When he walked back in his home, he walked back in his home with the gospel and set free. And his parents find out that he was in Arabia and he was hanging out with the Gentiles so that he could understand the culture better of understanding how the gospel really works with people. Saul is really a man that has no place. Because everywhere he tried to go after his conversion, he was not welcomed. He always faced death. And he couldn't go to a Jewish city because Jews wanted to kill him. He couldn't go to a Roman city because the Romans wanted to kill him. So he decides, hey, this is a good moment just to become a missionary. So he goes on his first missionary journey. And the reason is in his salvation, Jesus tells him that you're going to suffer and you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So he does. And he starts going by this name, Paul. It's always been his name, everybody. He didn't have this bright light. And God said, I'm going to change your name from Saul to Paul. Paul was a Gentile name. That one worked better. Think of it this way. When you, if you're not from here and you go back home, maybe they called you by a different name, right? It was a, and that's the name that you went by because that's the name that everybody recognized you by. It gave you some credibility about being back home, right? Think of it this way, that when Paul would go into the Gentile world, and you'll pay attention to this in the Scriptures, when he's with the Gentiles, it's Paul. When he's hanging, uh, it's Paul, but when he hangs out with the Jewish people, it's Saul. So he finds a way to bounce his name back and forth and use it. So he, he's going with Timothy, and he's on this journey. He meets Timothy on, on a second missionary journey. Timothy has some daddy issues, didn't didn't really know his dad. He's living with his grandmother and his mom. And we just know this, that Timothy loves the Lord enough that where there are two letters written to him in the Scripture and that Paul speaks into Timothy. He encourages Timothy. He says, I know you're young. Don't let people look down on you because of your age. Listen, we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to go and evangelize. We're going to be on this mission together. And, and they go on it. And what we find is they travel by land on the second trip because the boat thing didn't work out on the first. And they land in this place called Philippi. Now, this is where the book of Philippians, this letter is written to the people in Philippi. Okay, you following me? It's a lot of history. And this is just, remember, we're only on one word of the first verse, but we're going to get there, I promise. They're looking for believers in this place called Philippi. And you have to have 10 righteous men in the city to start a synagogue. In Philippi, guess how many men they found that were righteous? Zero. They couldn't even start a synagogue. So one morning, Paul and Timothy get up and they make a trip down to the river. There, they find a lady named Lydia who's leading the Bethmore Bible study, and they're talking to her, and she gives her life to Jesus. And she says, here's what we should do. You should come back and have church at my house. 
And they plant the church of Philippi. Paul meets her, shares the gospel with her. She responds to the gospel and she persuades Paul to start a church. Lydia is the first convert in the town of Philippi. So in Acts chapter 16, they're going back and forth to church at Lydia's house. And one day they run across a slave girl who had uh, an evil spirit in her. She was being trafficked because she had this demonic gift that where she could tell the future. So some guys had gotten a hold of that and they were using her and charging people so they can make money trafficking her in order to tell futures. Well, this did not sit well with Paul. So he goes and they cast the demon out of her. This obviously ticked off the men that thought they owned her because now their income had gone down because the very thing that was making the money is gone. So they go and make a complaint. I want you to imagine going to the courthouse making this complaint that, listen, we trafficked this girl because she had a demon where she could tell the future. And this guy came in and threw the demon out. Now we can't make any money. Could you please press charges on this guy? And they did. And they arrested Paul. And they brought him to jail. And now they have been arrested and they're in prison. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 16, they begin to pray. Here's my prayer in prison. God, would you please let me out of here? Anything. Like anything. I will go and serve anywhere, any place. You just get me out of here. And wouldn't that be our prayer? If we were falsely arrested? Paul's prayer was, would you help us preach with boldness? Because if we're in here, we're in here for a reason. And we're going to use this as a pulpit. They're going to love us or hate us. They're going to throw us out because we preach too much. Or they're going to just keep us in here longer and we're just going to continue preaching. But either way, it's going to happen. And they begin praying and singing hymns. And the walls begin to shake. And the guard passed out. Because he didn't know what was going on. And when he wakes up, all the jail doors are open. And he thinks, I'm going to be killed by my bosses. Because the rule was... Anything that happened to the Roman prisoners, you would be charged with that and charged by death. So he's in fear and he's ready to take himself out. But here's the prayer that as he is about to stab himself and take his life, a voice calls out from the darkness. Hey, don't do that. We are still here. Now, there's a there's a whole sermon in that, too. And some of you feel so far away. But look around you. We are still here for you. The church is still here. And what happens? This Roman guard surrenders his life to Jesus in that moment and is converted and then is invited to his home where they share a meal. The, the prison guard brings the prisoner to his home and they share a meal together. And then the Roman guard's entire family comes to know Jesus. And they're baptized. It's, it's amazing. Because in that moment, this entire family has come to know Christ. Through a very bad situation on Paul's part. As Paul's life being Jewish and he was Orthodox, every day Paul would have prayed this prayer as all good Jewish Orthodox 
men of this time would. By the way, this is not my prayer. Okay? Did y'all hear that? Not my prayer. I'm just quoting what they prayed. I do not agree with this prayer. You'll find out right now. Every day Paul would have prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, I'm not a slave or a Gentile. Told you, not my prayer. But the Spirit of God takes the Apostle Paul into Philippi, and the first three people that come to know Jesus are a woman and a slave and a Gentile. You think he was trying to tell you something? And these are the people that he's ministered to. These are the people that have given their lives to Jesus. And here we are. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians 10 years after he visits them. From a Roman jail cell, he wonders how his friends in Philippi are doing. And the Spirit of God gives him these words 10 years later to write to them. That's who's writing this letter. So it says, Paul and Timothy, servants. They're servants of Christ. That word servant in in the Greek is the word doulos. It's not like slave, like we would think of slaves today. It is slaves as in, hey, uh, I owe you some money. I can't pay you that money. Can I just work it off? That's a doulos. And he's saying, we had a debt. We want to work it off. And Jesus says, hey, your debt is paid in full, which would help us understand Exodus chapter 7. When God's setting up the law for the people, he sets it up that when a doulos serves their time, they can just choose to, hey, You've been so good to me during this process. I want to keep serving because there's so much goodness in serving you. And he says, Paul and Timothy are doulasses, are servants of who? Christ Jesus. So he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And then he, he picks this part up to all of who? Who's this all going to? The saints. Now, who are the saints? Now, there are a couple of ways that you can become a saint. We have these ideas of what saints are. I was curious. I looked up the process of becoming a saint. I'm not going to be a saint um, by these measures. Isn't it amazing how we use that word, though? Like, oh, he, he was no saint. I'll tell you what. I never heard that at a funeral, by the way, but I'm waiting on the day. In, in Catholicism, they have a process to become a saint. It's a four-step process. You, number one, you have to be appointed by someone who believes that you probably fit that of being a saint. Uh, you also have to be dead for five years before you can be nominated, just so you know. And then, so once you've been appointed, there has to be a case made. So they have all these committees that go and ask all these people and study. And, and then what they do is trying to find out, is this person really worthy of being called a saint? And if they say, well, we think so, then the next step is there has to be at some point evidence that you did a miracle. All right? If they find out that you did a miracle and you've been dead for five years, the last part of it is they need to make sure that you have done at least two miracles. And that's how you became the saint. Um, there's another, they have, they have patron saints. I just thought this was interesting. Um, they'll pray to saints that are patron saints so you know where to go for help. Um, the patron saint of abdominal pains. Um, I call that Taco Bell, but that's another, amen? Uh, patron saint of bachelors, there's 10 of those, because guys, we need some help. Um, patron saint of hangovers, I uh, hope none of you need that. Uh, patron saint of unattractive people. Um, not a lot of people that know that they should probably be seeking that one, um, don't realize it. Patron saint of spas, that's John the Baptist. That I don't like that dude was so far from a spa. Um, 
patron saint of girls from rural areas, country girls. Um, in other words, that's the one for Dylan, where I'm from. So you can become a saint by going through the four processes, or you can take a shortcut and you can just put your faith in Jesus Christ who makes you righteous on his behalf. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we may become the righteousness of God. Being, being a saint. So he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Let me just tell you this. That did you know every believer in Jesus has two addresses? We have a, an address here on earth. We have our earthly address, but we also have an address in heaven. And as followers of Jesus, we are to be agents in Jesus's prayer and ask heaven to come to earth. We are to be in Jesus at Monk's Corner or at Somerville or at Ladson, wherever you're from. We are to be in Jesus and at wherever it is that you live. But the problem is most of us are in Monk's Corner and at church. And it's backwards from what he's calling us to be. We tend to identify first with the temporary and secondly to the eternal. And what the Bible says that we have to do is to identify as brothers and sisters underneath the lordship of Jesus. And he goes on to say, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And I want you to hear these two words, including the overseers and the deacons. Here's why this is so important. Do you think that sharing the gospel with these three people in Philippi that was written 10 years ago from this moment that he's writing would have the impact that it had? He ministers to three people, and within 10 years, there is an organized body of believers called the church, and they're so organized they have overseers and deacons from three spiritual conversations. When you're a servant of Jesus and are obedient to him, you have no idea what hangs in the balance. No idea what hangs in the balance. Paul shares the gospel with three people. Ten years later, boom, there's an entire church that is meeting. This is who he's writing to. And this is what he wants from them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wants. He wants his people, the church of Philippi, to have grace for his people and peace from God. That word peace in the Hebrew is shalom. Say that with me. Shalom. Now you know a Hebrew word. It means wholeness. To be fully whole and fully complete in God, from God. When Paul's on his way to Damascus, he is known by two things, terror and law. Then he meets Jesus and now he brings grace and peace. The exact opposites of each other. God has completely changed him. The God that we serve wants grace and peace for you. But you don't get grace or peace without grace, and you don't get God the Father without knowing Jesus is Lord. See, Jesus offers rest for our soul, and we live in a world that is not very peaceful, is it? We're always on a peace mission trying to make things right. But 
without grace in Jesus, it's just it's a, it's not a good journey. Because all all you will find at the end of your journey is you without the grace and peace of Jesus. Paul writes this letter to a very young church who starts in a very unusual way. But he's going to encourage them through this book to have joy, to continuing. If you have joy in Jesus and you find your peace in Jesus, you will have joy. Eternal joy. It's never fleeting. We stand on the promise that our God will never leave nor forsake us. He's right in the middle. You'll never do anything to make him so mad he never wants to talk to you again. It's actually the opposite. He wants to pull you in as a child and have a conversation with you and love you. Cares for you. He wants you to have and experience grace and peace. And you can only experience grace and peace through Jesus. Through the good news of Jesus. And that's a lot of stuff, isn't it? That's half the sermon. But that's who's writing this letter. You need to understand that as we move forward. That this guy writing it was not a very good person until he encountered Jesus. And Jesus made all things new in his life. And he wants to do the same thing for you today. Can I just tell you this too, just to celebrate with you? Last weekend, we had five people make that same thing that they wanted the grace and peace of Jesus and five people gave their lives to Christ last week in total surrender last week. Total surrender. And we're going to baptize here in a couple of weeks. We've got seven people being baptized here in a couple of weeks. Of all people who have surrendered to Jesus because they're in the same place of just grace and peace, grace and peace. And if that's you this morning, I just if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. If you feel like, hey, my, my life is not full of grace and peace, it, is, that is, it feels like it's full of terror and law and legalism. And man, I've never encountered Jesus like this. And I've been a part of churches and it just seems like it's all law. Can I just tell you, this is not a law church. This is a grace-filled truth church. We believe in Jesus. But He wants to reach down and grab you today and lead you and love you and shepherd you. And all you have to do to have this peace and this grace is just surrender to Him. And if that's you this morning, you just make this prayer, this declaration. Jesus, I just ask that You would save me. Save me from my sin. I believe that You're the Messiah. You're Jesus, the Savior. And I want You to save me. I surrender my life to You. And if you prayed that prayer, just of saying, God, I surrender today. You are a part of the family of God. You have The Bible says you have been adopted as His son and His daughter. And if you have made that prayer, we want to know because we want to help guide you on your path. It doesn't stop today after a decision. There's a thing called discipleship. We want to help disciple you to help you grow in that relationship with Him. And if that's you, I just want you to stop by the welcome desk on your way out today and let them know today I made a decision. We want to pray with you and help get you set up on the right path. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for Paul. Lord, it is so unlikely that he was going to be the guy 
that you were going to use so greatly, especially throughout the New Testament, to bring the gospel. A man that caused so much terror to the church would have been the last pick of the people that we would have thought would have ever done anything that would have given glory to you. But Lord, we see ourselves in Paul. There's a little bit of Paul in every one of us. So today I pray that you would just cast out the legalism and cast out all the junk in our lives and let us be filled with you that we can be in Christ and centered. And I thank you for those today who have made decisions to follow you. I pray that they would just take steps of boldness and go and make that, make that known to others. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.